Hey guys, this is Jordan, your show host, and also one of the founders of the Tribe Mastermind. I just wanted to give you guys a little shout out to let you know that we got something special going on with Tribe Mastermind. This is a high level mastermind for property management entrepreneurs that are interested in talking about the big picture. Yes, most certainly business, the tactical, the strategic, but also the big why behind why we're on this journey together. So if you're interested in learning more about Tribe, what this mastermind looks like, you can get more details at tribemastermind.com. Check it out. Love to see you there. I don't throw darts at a board. I bet on sure things. Read Sun Tzu, The Art of War. Every battle is won before it's ever fought. Think about it. Welcome, closers, to another episode of the Profitable Property Management Podcast. I am your host, Jordan Wayla. Today, we have Rich Ford on the show. Rich and I met at the inaugural IMN event, specifically within the single family segment. Rich led a panel that I was on. We had some good conversations afterwards. And Rich has an interesting story as a part of the founding team over at Roofstock. So before I steal his thunder, Rich, welcome to the show. Well, first, Jordan, thank you for having me on it. I'm glad to uh, be spending a little time with you again and um, look forward to uh, the podcast. Absolutely. So give us some background right out of the gate. What is Roofstock? What does the company do? Yeah, so Roofstock is an online marketplace that's enabling both buyers and sellers to transact in the single family rental space. So this is, uh, we put the company together um, to facilitate facilitate the seamless transferring of properties, particularly with a tenant in place and particularly with folks that may not live in the same area as the property. So it's an investment platform, kind of turning more of a consumer experience, whereas real estate investment traditionally has felt a little stodgy, a little complicated. There's a lot of moving parts. In some ways, if people go to the Roofstock website, it's almost kind of like they're getting an e-commerce experience for, for purchasing real estate. Fair? Yeah, that's right. I mean, what you know, one of the reasons we, we put the platform together was... We, we realized just how painful and expensive, frankly, it was to transact in the sector. It's a massive sector. Um, it's a great investment product, but you know, it didn't make sense for people to fly across the country to go and see homes. It also did not make sense to vacate a home in order to sell it to a new investor. And so what we put in place was a, a model where the tenant could stay in place during um, the transfer of ownership. And, and just to put that into perspective, you know, when, when I was investment banking, and, I, and I'll go through some background as well, um, people very quickly realized that if they couldn't sell a big chunk of homes together to another institutional investor, the process of vacating homes, engaging a realtor, um, spending three or four months in that process where they're first fixing it up, then getting the home marketed, then getting it under contract and closing, um, really added uh, to really what was the cost because there was three or four months of lost revenue during that period. There was also a, a full commission on both sides. And then even if the tenant had looked after the home pretty well, the home still had to be prepped for market. So there was still improvement dollars, which could be, you know, two, three, four thousand dollars $4,000. And, and if you think about the average $100,000 home, let's call it, with $1,000 of rent just around the numbers, you know, three or four months lost rent, five or $6,000 for commission, 
and two to four thousand dollars in in expenses to turn the property in what was a perfectly good property that someone was renting previously, you know, that could be ten to twelve thousand dollars against a hundred thousand dollar purchase price. So that's really painful, particularly if you had the property levered. And so our model is leaving that tenant in place and just transferring the cash flows from one investor to another, just like you would in multifamily. Nobody empties an apartment building to sell it. Um, you know, so this allows someone to step into cash flows day one, which is what the buyer wants, and allows the, the seller to also not have the pressure of having a vacant property and start dropping their prices in order to, to move the product. They're getting cash flow right up into the point. We charge 2.5% on individual retail property sales um, to the, to the, to the um, seller, and the buyer pays a half a point to cover the cost of prepping the property and, and doing upfront inspections and a lot, of the, um, a lot of the upfront work that we do so somebody can underwrite it from afar. So we've seen the rise of institutional within the single family space within the last decade. We've seen this investment thesis and idea that single family as an asset class could perform on par with multifamily, get more and more traction and actually start to become a reality. What is your background prior to getting into to Roofstock and what kind of makes you, what has influenced how you think about this asset class? Yeah, so I actually uh, spent 20 years investment banking uh, in the real estate um, focus sector doing mergers and acquisitions and capital raising for companies. And so I was very familiar with you know, office and retail and industrial and storage and multifamily. Um, single family rentals has obviously always been around. It's just never been an institutional asset class. We, we really required almost a perfect storm of technology getting to a spot where people could manage a group of homes. Um, efficiently, and frankly, a, a jumping in point, which the financial crisis created. And so the first companies coming into the sector, you know, were backed by, you know, private equity that really couldn't even use leverage at that time. But the prices had dropped substantially enough for them to make a bet on trying to put together a portfolio of homes and utilize the existing technology to have it come together. I was very fortuitous to have made a personal investment in, in one of the early companies in a little fund and, and sort of saw um, the opportunity there, and then to get involved with the companies that were raising the capital and then ultimately the initial public offerings, and then a lot of the M&A activity or the, the sales of and the purchases of large pools of assets, which gave me a, a unique perspective then to sort of think about this asset class as compared to multifamily and what were some of the requirements needed to, to make this a institutional more sophisticated asset class, but that could also be democratized and, and, and mm. invested in by people across the country and across the world. So that's interesting to me, you saying democratizing it. Who is the average roof stock customer? What do they look like? Yeah, so um, we, we actually service the whole, the whole spectrum. So we have institutional and retail customers. A lot of people you know, will go onto our site and look at the individual homes that we sell, but we do also sell big pools of homes for institutional investors. Um, some of those go to other institutional investors, some go to newer investors, some get broken up and, and, and sold um, on, on the retail side. And that was one of the big advantages by putting this platform together. When I was an investment banker, I sold about 7,000 homes and seven transactions. and you really could only sell in one big bulk. We just, you know, no one was set up to, to break that into a lot of different pieces. Now we have the ability to take a pool of homes and really 
match up the demand with the supply. And it doesn't need to be a single transaction, but we still do you know, some fairly large transactions on the platform, but that's still relatively small. I heard some of your other guests talk about the size of the industry and the institutional size. And yeah, there's probably 400,000 of these 16 million homes that are owned by some form of institutional capital. So it's a very small percentage. So the big opportunity you know, is, is, is really with the mom and pop and the retail and investors out there. And our average investor there is is quite interesting. We actually have um, a lot of folks that don't even own their own home, uh, folks that are in coastal cities, like out here in the Bay Area or in, in the New York area, that their first purchase is now an, an investment property, which um, which is which is pretty interesting. Um, but it's a, it's across the spectrum. The one thing that is, I think, Rustock is really opening up is before folks that own single family rental homes lived within a 10 mile radius of, of the home. And, and it, right. that's how it had to work. Um, now with the, um, you know, with, with all these different property management tools that are being brought to bear by, uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of your listing base, there's been some great, you know, great improvements that the institutional capital helped bring to the, even to the mom and pop property managers. Um, and, you know, the technology to allow people to go in and purchase properties, you know, sight unseen, um, you know, on the other side of the country has, has really opened that up. So, most of our investors don't do not live um, anywhere near the city that they've um, that they've invested in. Most of them now can pursue a diversification strategy, which was really challenging to do previously. Mm, got it. So let's talk about how this relates to third-party single-family residential property management companies, because that's the bulk of of who listens to this podcast. For folks that are in that category, and Sometimes you'll hear some of those folks articulate that it's frustrating to feel commodified by the landlord, to feel like that they don't get paid the management fee or they don't get enough credit. The reality is in any given market, there's going to be a nexus somewhere between being a true commodity and being a trusted advisor. My fundamental belief is that the scope of the problem that you're willing to own and solve for the customer is in large part what gives you the authority to command a premium mar- premium market position. How can a platform like Roofstock help your average property management company own a broader cross-section of, of the customer life cycle and the subset of needs that their landlords have? Yeah, well, so um, the reason I wanted to do this um, is that the, the property management um, business is absolutely essential to our marketplace. And we actually already have about 50 partners in the different markets that we operate in and know a whole bunch of property managers beyond that. So. When somebody goes to our site to choose a property, they also go and choose and select a property manager and often their financing partner as well. And so we've already um, are working with probably a lot, a lot of your customer base in that you know they're displayed on our site as um, a recommended property manager for that region. We we are very high on transparency. I do agree with you. I, I don't think that, the, that whoever just charges the cheapest fees is the best property manager to select. Um, so, but we do want people to know exactly what all of the fees are that are going to be charged. So we require our property management partners to put up a card and list not only what their monthly property management fee is, but how they handle leasing, how they handle recurrent maintenance, et cetera. And we, we work daily with, with property managers to train. A lot of the people that we sell properties from may not be um, retaining property management. Uh, a lot of the large institutional players, for example, don't do third-party property management. So when we sell homes to 
other investors, they need a partner in that marketplace. So we've been able to help people grow their footprint pretty significantly and bring a lot of out of town investors um, that really require that the services of that property manager. Um, you know, we're also hoping to start spending a lot more time working with the customer base of those existing property managers and mm-hmm. having their right. clients be able to grow um, and and be able to invest in properties. You know, both within you know within that current um, city framework or, or, or outside. And so we're spending a little bit more time on that um, currently, and um, looking forward to having a lot of good relationships in that sector. Yeah, that's what I want to hear more about. So what I observe is that if you are a property management entrepreneur and you have clients that, let's say on average, your average landlord client owns 1.6 properties. Obviously, there's a massive amount of leverage in taking that from 1.6 to, to 2 to 2.5. The more properties your average owner owns, for obvious reasons, it's pretty clear how that benefits everybody. What might that look like in the future to help me as a property management company owner help my existing investors and owners purchase more properties? And how could I be involved in that relationship in a way that allows me to essentially to look smart for making that referral and for facilitating that outcome? Yeah. Um, so a couple of things. So one is, and you, you may know these stats better than me, but I feel like 10, 15%, in some cases, 20% of the property management book turns every year. And most of the time, from what I've heard, the property managers don't find out that their existing owner is selling the property until they go and ask about the renewal. And at that point, they've already committed to a realtor and vacating the property and putting it on the MLS. Well, th- well in our minds, that's you know, that should be a very much a secondary strategy. The first thing that, that should happen is that that property should be marketed with a tenant in place to other investors and therefore reduce the friction cost from that current owner. And that's a great opportunity for the property manager to reduce that churn and retain that ownership. Now, it may be that somebody who buys that property has another property manager they're current, currently using or doesn't want to use a property manager. So that, you know, is part of that equation. But for the most part, we've experienced that if somebody's in place doing a good job property managing it and another investor buys that property, they'll want to retain that existing property manager. And so it's a little bit counterintuitive for property managers to be reaching out to their ownership base and saying, hey, have you thought about selling your property? That seems like, you know, but the bottom line is, you know, 10, 15% or more of folks are are going to sell for different reasons, financial reasons, you know, um, diversification, lots of other reasons. And it's probably going to happen whether the property manager reaches out or not. And so we're trying to make sure that our model can evolve to, you know, help that property manager retain as much of that business as possible. And also, um, you know, provide them with, you know, opportunities for referral fees and other situations too. To answer your question about the 1.6 going to 2 to 2.6, et cetera, um, I think a big part of that is financing. Uh, there's a lot of folks that obviously use uh, mortgages that are, are Freddie and Fannie um, compliant and, and are quite attractive. But there's a lot of people that don't. There's a lot of folks that had debt on their property a while ago and the property has increased in value and they could refinance the property, pull more capital out and go and use that, that to invest. Uh, we haven't spent enough time on that yet, but I do think allowing, you know, helping facilitate 
the, the optimal financing for the existing properties and allowing people to go and make other purchases um, efficiently, whether it's in that marketplace or outside, um, is very much a part of you know the future. And I, I absolutely feel that there's going to be a lot of consolidation in this space. Uh, I do think people are going to realize that this is an asset class that's fairly um, you know, that can be managed um, fairly easily with professional help, and it'll become a bigger part of their investment portfolio. So a lot of the homes that just happenstance made it. Uh, in, in, into folks' hands that really are um, holding them for a short period of time here, I think they will get into hands of folks that really are looking at this as a, a cash-flowing, uh, awesome investment opportunity to diversify their overall portfolio. Mm-hmm. I've certainly seen shifts in the market in that regard. So talking about seeing the opportunity um, and outside capital coming in, that's really felt like it's happened at a much more aggressive Pace. If you go to your average NARPM event, National Association of Resident Property Managers, you're going to find more companies that uh, that look like a more traditional Silicon Valley tech profile kind of coming to play in this space. And I think that's only going to continue. You've got the more institutional players that are owning homes and within third-party management. You've got companies like OneRent, Mind, Straight Lane, for example. I'd love to hear some of your commentary on feedback on where Roofstock uh, sees Street Lane going and what the rationale was for making that acquisition. Yeah, so, so for those that don't know, Street Lane is an um, institutional property management platform that Roofstock purchased last year. Um, you know, this was, uh, this was a, a thoughtful pro- um, purchase for many reasons. I mean, first off, you know, we um, aspire to be the experts in single-family rental. We're, we've got deep knowledge in the space. We want to be a place that is a trusted resource that really knows the sector inside out and can help service people in lots of different ways. Property management is a pretty important part. So by, you know, by not, not, not by only understanding property management at a superficial level and not, and just having partners and not going in and, and really understanding the nuts and bolts of, of, of what makes this work. Um, you know, that was a bit of a missing ingredient. So to, to own a property management platform, frankly, is allowing us to become better asset managers in the future, allowing us to understand the sector, the returns, everything a lot, a lot better. And we are very much a tech-enabled company, and we want to be at the forefront of bringing all of the technology and services, yield optimization, um, you know, to, to the forefront. We also, though, um, recognized that, and I heard Michael Cook, I think, speak on one of the earlier podcasts you had that, you know, there are there is new capital coming to the sector, and one of the big constraints that capital has is being able to plug into a whole portfolio of homes in a very seamless way. There are some excellent property managers, and some of them are getting getting some scale, but a lot of them aren't used to doing institutional reporting where they've got Wall Street financing against it, um, or don't have the ability to scale, you know, as quickly or do the upfront costs um, required to, you know, set up for the future. I heard Michael talk about, you know, the fact that institutional capital has come in and out of some of these property management companies. So people are a little bit hesitant to mm-hmm. build for the future. We don't have that, you know, constraint or restriction. You know, we, we very much are building on a, a very large platform and are willing to invest ahead of time. So when we're marketing large portfolios, for example, it's great to be able to market it to folks that already have existing property management footprints. That, that's fine. But we also come across a lot of groups that either don't have that property management footprint in the new market that they want to go into or you know, are new entrants into the space. So by being able to offer 
a property management um, uh, entry point um, for those large portfolio transa transactions is, is incredibly important. The other thing that we'll talk about, I'm sure, a little bit on the podcast is this new security that we created uh, called Roofstock One, where we've wrapped property management together with financing, together with insurance, and basically have created a security where somebody could buy the equity in the home. Um, and that was uh, it very much required us to control the, the property management experience there because we we're doing some things that are a little bit more unique than most property management companies are, are, are currently doing by putting up an, you know, an upfront reserve and pulling cash flow off the property monthly, setting up a, a program and inner, inner loans and, and such that can make this really a standalone investment that someone doesn't really have a lot of decisions or have to worry about. And so that was another key reason that owning um, a platform um, like Street Lane made a lot of sense. And then lastly, um, we do think particularly on the institutional side that there, it's still pretty fragmented. There's a lot of groups out there that own two, 3,000 homes that all have their own property management platform because they felt they needed to put it in place. And they're all kind of sitting out there. And at some point, it makes sense for, you know, for someone to really bring some economies to scale and invest heavily in the technology and expand that that footprint. We don't need 12 different you know, property managers in, in one market servicing you know, those institutional clients. And so I expect that over time, and it'll probably be slow because we need to really make sure we're adding a lot of value to those existing property managers, but I expect at, time, at some time there'll be some consolidation and you know, that could be an area that we become involved with. Hey, Daniel Craig here with Profit Coach. You've probably heard Jordan talk on the podcast about the NARPM accounting standards that we authored on behalf of NARPM. This groundbreaking initiative standardizes financial reporting for the property management industry, and we're committed to helping as many companies as possible get on the standard this year. If you'd like to get converted, we'd love to help with one of our two conversion packages. The first gets you converted on a go-forward basis only, and the second actually converts you on a historical basis going back two full years, and that comes with a comprehensive financial performance report that provides a deep dive analysis of your financial performance in over 30 financial KPIs and compares your performance to key industry financial benchmarks. Go to pmprofitcoach.com forward slash NAS for details. And be sure to mention this ad for a special 10% off discount. That's pmprofitcoach.com forward slash NAS. All right, there's a lot to unpack there, but let's go ahead and dive right into what you mentioned with the Roofstock One offering. This is a trend we're already seeing in our space. In general, there's awareness that if you can de-risk the offering for the consumer, there's a lot of leverage in that. It's a great way to get market share. Obviously, you got to think through it, make sure you can handle those risks. There's some actuarial modeling. At the heart of the Roofstock One offering, what is the specific um, risk that you're trying to take off the table for the consumer? Yeah, excellent question. I think there's there's two key things. One is allowing somebody to feel comfortable to step into the investment to begin with and remove a lot of the pain points and, and the decision making. Um, and, and then two is to be able to um, provide a investment that doesn't require um, a lot of follow through and monitoring and um, decision making as well as smooth out the cash flows a little bit. So on the front end, what we were finding is you know, we have over 100,000 people coming to Roofstock's um, site every month, um, several thousand registering, um, in, in, you know, registering with Roofstock 
and a, a good number transacting, but a lot of folks were sort of falling down with all the decisions they still needed to make. They had to choose their property, they had to choose a property manager, they had to choose financing, then they had to figure out insurance. And then they realized as they got into this, they were going to be asked if they should increase rent or leave it at the same level. If the tenant left, you know, are they going to do a big turn and try to push the rents? Or are they going to leave the property in, you know, just do a little touch-up paint and carpet and leave it sort of in its current state? Um, there's some people that are excellent at that and want to do all that, and there's real value added by, by being a, a good steward and, and, and carefully monitoring all that. But there's also a very large cohort of people you know, that invest in stocks and bonds and other areas that aren't used to having to make those, mm -hmm. you know, that many decisions. They really, really want to be a capital allocator and have, you know, Rootstock really sort of be an asset manager. So for those folks, by, by packaging a property with, with its, its financing and, and insurance and a property management um, model, and again, this, this, this is a the decision making for the investor is, is, is really limited. We are we're going to do certain types of turns. We're going to um, improve rents in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a very standard form. So you're really making an investment in the property and then being able to sit back and just make the you know make make the decision over time if you're going to stay in the investment or exit out of the investment. And so we made it a lot simpler. You're still choosing your property, but all of that other you you know we called it rootstock ones like you know. One click, I mean, you, you really are being able to purchase this property easily. The other thing that's really important to note is we actually technically hold title. So none of the liabilities wow. are with the investor. Um, and, and on top of that, the loan that's on place in the property does not go through to the investor's personal P&L. So when somebody else is applying for you know, a, a car loan or, or, or purchasing their, their, their own house, that, that is not a liability that sits on their balance sheet. Just like when they own a stock, the debt against the company isn't there. We've also made it, um, depreci the, the depreciation rights um, sit with the equity investor. So you have all the benefits of, of owning um, the asset with all the cash flows and such, but, but, but none, of, none of the liabilities. So you, we structured it so you get a, a quarterly distribution and we're targeting five plus percent um, for that, we do do an upfront reserve, and we take a reserve off the property each each month to take into account the average wear and tear. Some months it'll be more, and some months it'll be less. But the, the cash flow coming off the property will be consistent, and and therefore, you know, someone is receiving a nice stream, a, a smoother stream of cash flows over time. If we ever deplete the reserve, we've got an intercompany loan set up so that the property go can go from fifty percent lever to fifty three percent. And nobody's calling you up to, you know, shell five hundred dollars on, you know, out of pocket to get a new hot water heater. It's it's just like owning a stock in that regard. Wow! So you're basically doing everything but loaning me the down payment for the home. <laughs> this is really a, a soup to nuts solution. You're kind of blowing my mind here. I was recently looking at Belong, BelongHome.com for those uh, listeners that want to check it out. They have an offering where there, there are two choices if you choose Belong as a third-party management company. You can either get paid on the first of the month guaranteed and pay 8%, or you can get a full year's of rent all up front all for just 12%. You're paying a premium. But that's assuming that you've done all the work to actually go through the process of owning the home, rehabbing, fixing it up. I thought that that was an innovative end run. You're saying let's do an end run around all all of that, and we'll walk you through all of those other steps. When you think about 
this flavor of innovation, what does a guy, what is, what is the guy in finance? What does the guy, what does the CFO say uh, to try and, and stress test and rain on the parade of something this interesting and innovative? Cause surely there are some things that can go wrong when you're covering this much of scope. Yeah. I mean, it took us a very long time to launch this and I, 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 I'd be embarrassed to tell you our legal bills to kind of put this together. I mean, basically each home is put into its own special purpose vehicle. We, we, we utilize the Delaware statutory trust and then used series underneath that trust. So each home is actually in its own entity and to sort of blow your mind a little bit further last week, we just um, announced fractionalization of the home. So you can now purchase a 10th of a home, and, wow. and have and spread out your investment over lots of different properties because diversity was the other thing um, that uh, you know that was a big part of, of people building up a portfolio. The one thing that is is a little challenging still is we have it, it is a security, so we have had to start with accredited investors. So this is a product that that currently is only available to accredited investors. But one of the you know, themes of, of Rootstock is really to, you know, to democratize this investment opportunity and bring it to everybody, just like we have with the individual homes. And so we'll be working, you know, over the next several quarters um, to be able to figure out ways to bring um, this investment opportunity to non-accredited investors. But it's, um, it, it is novel, and uh, there's, uh, there, there's a lot that, that went into putting it together, but we're in really early days yet, and I'm sure... Um, you know, I'm, I'm sure we'll be talking hopefully more about it as we sort of expand. We're currently only offering this in a couple of markets, Atlanta and Indianapolis, but we're expanding into a few more markets shortly. Yeah, this is this is pretty wild. When are you guys launching your ICO? <laughs> <laughs> I get it. There's there's a limit here, but no, this is really innovative. So, how do you feel like this changes? the go-to market strategy is the idea here that this is really going to open up the pool of potential uh, folks that you can work with. You said you got a hundred, hundred thousand folks coming to the website, a thousand signing up is presumably that a much broader subset of those folks are now going to be able to get in the game that up until this point, we're just kind of sitting on the sidelines. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, we really do feel strongly that, um, you know, we, we still, you know, the, the, the original Rootstock site, Rootstock Originals is there, and there are people that, you know, want to go buy properties and even manage them themselves. And I think at some point we'll probably get to some sort of a la carte management um, models with some of your clients probably as, as, as things evolve here. Um, but there's a big group of investors that really, you know, like the opportunity um, but want to, you know, want to sort of treat it just like when they purchase a portfolio, you know, a stock or, you know, or bonds or what have you. And so I really do see a time when, you know, a wealth management um, professional, you know, has this as part of their suite uh, to offer their clients. And, you know, there's lots of ways we could potentially be distributing this product in the future. We're, you know, we're starting off very small and testing things to your, to your point, making sure that um, everything works well. But over time, um, I, you know, I, I think you'll see this being able to be offered in, in, a, in a lot of different ways. One, um, you know, one other important point that, um, you know, isn't currently in place for the fractionalization pieces, although we're working on that, but for the whole homes is we've also made the investment 1031 eligible. So folks, you know, could easily, you know, transfer into this investment if they, if they purchase the whole home, which I think is also something we'll see a lot, a lot more of in the single family rental spaces all of the existing, you know, multifamily and other real estate investors, um, you know, start finding this asset class. How long has Roofstock been around for? 
You know, we, we, we raised um, our first little bit of capital just over three and a half years ago, and then really came out of our beta about three years ago. Yeah, approximately three years ago. So the first year was building the markets and building a lot of the teams. And, you know, really this, this last 12 months to 18 months, we've, you know, starting to hit our stride and expand into a lot of markets and, and um, add, a lot of, um, add a lot to our product offering. And give me some size and feel for the company in terms of either headcount or transaction velocity. Yeah, we um, we have approximately a hundred people here in our in our uh, Oakland Bay um, area office headquarters, uh, and about forty five people, I think, in our um, Dallas office, which is where Streetland is, is headquartered. There's a few people in the field in, in, in different markets. Uh, we work with a lot of partners, so you know we work with all sorts of different property managers, as I mentioned. Um, and uh, inspection companies and, and valuation partners, uh, et cetera. And then we have some outsourced help on the, on the technology front um, as, as well. But the team that's in place here um, uh, in, uh, in the Bay Area here is you know, probably, I'd say, about a third of that team is coders, programmers, data scientists, um, you know, really technology-focused. And then we probably have about a third of the team that is you know, operation, um, sales, uh, and, and then, you know, the rest is, is, is marketing and business development. We have an enterprise team uh, that works on the large transactions, uh, but it all has to come together. And that's been, the, that's been the challenging part. We're bringing a lot of different expertise uh, to, to one spot and, and getting it all to function appropriately and making sure we really understand everything on the ground and working with our partners on the ground is very important. Any other stats? Do you guys do you guys disclose how uh, transaction volume, like how many deals you guys have done or have gone through the platform? Yeah, I mean we're we're you know it, those are always a little bit tricky because there's um, you know there's some lumpy transactions that happen with some you know with some very large um, deals that take place, but you know, we we probably tracking to be close to ten thousand homes that will will execute on this year, give or take. Got it. Oh, interesting. So you mentioned that you guys are headquartered out of the Bay Area. Are you from the Bay? You know, I actually grew up in British Columbia, but I've been in uh, I've been in the San Francisco Bay Area for most of my uh, most of my career. A little bit of time in New York, a little bit of time in Chicago, and a little bit of time in London. So I got to ask, what's your take on startup culture in the Bay Area? It's uh, notorious and celebrated in so many different ways. You guys are in Oakland, which is kind of like becoming the new hub. Do you think that the Bay is still worthy of of the title of being kind of the crown hub of, of startups? And for those that aren't there, what makes it so unique for startups? That's a great question. I mean, it... it, it, it I think it is still going to be a very central point for folks um, that want to raise capital and, and hire the right types of types of people. But I think there's little pockets that are happening all over. You know, I was in Phoenix yesterday, and you know, there's some there's some great companies that that have started there. They're doing a big prop tech um, initiative with um, shortly here. Uh, Austin obviously, you know, has uh, uh, a lot. New York City, of course. So I, I think what's what's kind of cool, just like with with Roofstock and, and, this, and, and this whole single-family rental sector is with technology, you really can kind of operate, you know, almost anywhere. I think the trick is, you know, where are you finding the talent pools and, you know, and how, um, how, uh, how easy it is to access investors if they're not down the road from you. I, I think one of the things that the Bay Area really has going for it, for it is we're a venture capital-backed company. 
um, great partners that you know can spend real time with us and you know drive you know drive over and, and come to our offices. And I do think that does help. But I also think there's lots of people that are willing to hop on airplanes and, and go to other areas. All right. So indulge me for one more question about the Bay. There's so much uh, debate about how to solve the housing crisis within the Bay Area. You got the NIMBY folks, you got the folks on the other side. What's your basic take on, on, do you think it is as big of a problem as folks make it out to be? And any thoughts on a potential solution? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, it, is, there is, it is a problem. I mean, it's very expensive to live here. Um, this, isn't, this hasn't yet been a, a, a strong um, market for, for investors and in that the yields are pretty low compared to the prices, even though the rent growth year over year has proven to be, you know, outpaced most, most everywhere else. Um, so I think for longer term investors, it's, it's, it's actually generally proven to be very, um, you know, be, a, be a smart investment. Um, but but it is challenging, and I do think that there's a lot of initiatives. I'd like for us to start getting involved in some of them as we as we grow. Um, there's you know a lot of that's happening with the modular home uh, side mm-hmm. of things and, and build to rent. Uh, I think unfortunately due to you know due to some of the fires and such, I think that's ha- that's required cities to get a lot um, more proactive in, in the amount of time it takes to get land entitled and try to encourage rebuilding. So I think hopefully there'll be. A little bit of a shift, so the cost of you know creating more housing is is, is easier. Um, I think there, you know, I think there's all sorts of really cool things going on um, on the living front um, with you know smaller spaces and communal living and um, you know, companies like you know like WeWork who have redefined the you know the work environment. You know, uh, are you know are going to start redefining I think the way that that people live. Um, but I think it's you know I don't think this is a short term. Um, I don't think there's any short-term sort of solution. I think really people need to be help, helping on all fronts. I noticed some companies have created funds to help um, to, to help with this, and, and these are companies like you know Kaiser Permanente that have a lot of you know nurses and folks that they want to have affordable housing for and 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 such. So I think that's great. I think those, hopefully those dollars will be invested in technologies and companies you know helping to create more affordable housing but you bring up a, a really good point that'll I'll tie sort of back to the whole you know property management theme is that you know this country needs workforce housing and, and you know the Bay Area for sure it's expensive but we're adding 1.2 or 1.4 million households per year and wow. there's not going to be you know too much built to rent there's absolutely a big focus and some of some of my clients are really focused on it and it works really well in certain pockets. But it's also, you know, doesn't work in lots of areas. It's just, it's just too expensive for, you know, to build homes that could be entry level. And so there's a lot more product, you know, that's going to need to be turned into rentals, existing product that's out there. And in addition, I think that, you know, investors coming into the space are going to play a big role on this. And, and I, I totally think that the property management field in general is going to expand um, in a big way because I think as you have some more consolidation of ownership, and uh, more um, out of uh, town investors uh, and more technologies that are that are making property management more efficient. I think more people are going to choose to utilize property management. I think you'll see lots of less self. I have three children. I, I don't expect them to be self managing uh, investment properties. You know, along with most everybody else that I talk to, it's just it's 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 gone are the days where you know someone's going to drive down the street and and fix uh, fix the faucet at you know two in the morning. So 
Um, I, I think that it bodes well for the property management um, companies in general, and so we're we're hoping to be a part of that growth as well. I think it's a it's a great opportunity um, to to you know to allow investment dollars to come into the, and create workforce housing in all the areas that it's needed. Yeah, absolutely. I, that definitely resonates. So, Rich, your title is Chief Development Officer. Um, maybe not one of the more traditional CMO, CTO, CFO. What does a Chief Development Officer do? Yeah, you know, we um, we were trying to actually figure out the right title because, um, you know, a lot of what I do is work on the enterprise side. I have a lot of the institutional relationships, and so I've got a team that's responsible for, you know, working on several of the large portfolio transactions, but also, as I mentioned, those transactions – you know, work their way down into um, feeding the, the marketplace for, you know, retail properties and, and, and back and forth. And then, you know, a lot of the business development um, work, you know, falls um, with in my team. But I, to be fair, everybody at Roostock does business development. I mean, we are very much a startup. We're trying to do things that haven't been done before. None of it's rocket science, but it all requires a, a real business development mindset. And so everybody in, in the company pretty much does business development. So I, I get the luxury of being the chief development officer, but really um, most of the great development ideas and a lot of the hard work is being done by you know everybody else on the team. So in addition to being the chief development officer, you are also one of the co-founders. I want to close out the interview by talking a little bit about company culture. At 100 people, that's enough scale where it's very clear that there's going to be some kind of a culture. The idea of culture is, culture is inescapable, right? There will always be a culture regardless of the degree that it is intentionally shaped or crafted. What is your take on what the role of culture looks like for a smaller company, for a company that's at 10, 15 people? Some folks would say that culture is this amorphous thing and you shouldn't worry about it until you have to. Other folks say get behind it from day one. What are your, what's your kind of take on how to structure a culture that will actually lead to the kind of outcome that's aligned with, with high growth and high results? Culture is, uh, you know, I, there may be people that ignore it, and but it's, uh, I, I mean, when you're growing a business, it's everything. Um, you know, we're, we're, Roostock is technology, but it's really people. And so particularly as you pointed out, when you get to 100 people, um, you really start, start to have, you really have to have a strong culture um, to make, uh, you know, folks continue to be innovative, work hard, um, and get along well. We uh, we give everybody ownership in the company, so there's 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 alignment from that front, which I think has been been very helpful in, in creating um, you know creating the right mindset going in. Um, we, you sort of need to uh, walk the walk the talk. I, I think most uh, most of the senior management team tries to lead by examples. Uh, we we definitely I don't I don't know what words I'm allowed to use or not use, but very early on we came from a uh, no a-hole policy. Um, yeah. we, you know, it, we, uh, I worked on Wall Street and there's some really talented people and there's some great, great people, but there's some also some people that are talented but not so great to work with. Uh, we, we very early on decided that, you know, we, that was not the culture that we wanted to build, even if somebody was a superstar. So we worked very hard to make sure we do not recruit anybody that potentially could even fit into that category. And if we make a mistake along the way, we'll We'll work that out um, really quickly. Uh, we and you know it, it is really important. I'd say more so in these companies that require all of these different types of groups to work together because you're definitely getting a lot of different personalities. And so culture is the one thing that can kind of tie it together. When I was taking companies public, 
um, in the real estate sector, you know, often the CEO, you know, he or she had done property management, had done leasing, had done, you know, the big first financing or the big first acquisition. And so, you know, they really kind of knew every piece of the business. They might not know the latest software, but, but, but they really could almost um, see where there's problems and make it happen. I mean, we're, we've got data scientists and, 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 and a lot of the people were type A personalities, particularly in investment banking. You know, here we've got, you know, we've got sales uh, team members and data scientists and, and engineers and marketing folks. And everybody is a pretty good specialist at what they work in. And I don't think there's any one person that could do anybody else's job. Um, so it really requires everybody to work together. And that's really hard to do. Um, it, it, it really requires uh, creating a culture of, um, of moving things along and getting it done because nothing gets done that well unless you have some deadlines and some goals. Um, but also working in a manner um, where there's a lot of respect for what your teammates are doing and uh, competing viewpoints and how having them bubble up to the top because there's no one person that has the best idea every time. So it's it's not easy and there's not, I don't think there's a formula for it, but I, I, I do think the fact that you're talking about it, if a company is even talking about culture, that's half the battle because then they're aware of how important it is to grow a successful company. But it, it's very much a, a big part of Rootstock is creating a, a culture that is, is uh, moving forward and wants to take on the world, um, but at the same time um, is, is doing that in a manner that uh, they feel good about themselves at the end of the day. I wouldn't expect anything less. All right. Well, now for the real, real final last question of the interview, I ask this to every single guest, Rich, in your opinion, are entrepreneurs born or bred? Uh, that's a great question. Um, there's definitely, uh, Gregor Watson, uh, you know, my, my co-founder is a uh, born entrepreneur for sure. Uh, he, uh, he I, I don't, I don't know what area, you know, um, he'll pop up in, in, in next, but he's always got a lot of incredibly good ideas. And, um, you know, but I also, you know, somebody like myself, I was, uh, focused on investment banking for 20 years and was, uh, elected to become an entrepreneur and, and learning along the way. I, I think, it, I, I think it can, I think it can play the gamut. Um, I do think people need to be able to take on a, a little bit of risk and feel comfortable with that. That's probably the biggest, um, you know, the biggest differentiator. And I think that, you know, there's some lucky people on there, but you got to work hard. I mean, there's, there's, there, there's, there's no way around it. I worked really hard when I was in investment banking. I thought that's as hard as it got, but you've got to work hard to make something successful. There's no overnight successes either, by the way, like all these companies that pop up, you know, on our, on our screens, they've all been working at things for, for a long time before that day they, they popped up and, and, you know, we appreciate that and get that. We want to move fast, but um, we know that, you know, it takes a little bit of time. Yeah, I'm with you. And you're still working hard, man. I see I see that hustle. So, Rich, for folks that want to get in touch or find more about Roofstock, what's the best place for them to go? Yeah, probably our website. Um, you know, there's uh, we are at, you know, at, at the conferences and we have fo fo folks on the ground, but you know, going to roofstock.com is probably the best place to start. There's ways to get in, in contact with people. Um you know, uh, through that, um, on the property management side, we have a lot of different partnerships. Um, one of our colleagues, Andy Boyum, looks after that. Uh, he's very easy to get get in touch with, very easy to find. And, uh, you know, we're all pretty accessible. We get a lot of e emails and texts, but uh, we, we do try to get back to everybody. And so, um, you know, feel free even to, you know, to, to track us down through LinkedIn or through, you know, through our site. Perfect. Rich, thanks again for coming on the show. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Have a great day.